0: Recently, Verizon had to use Tiny Red Balls to try to make you think they had a much better network than Sprint. But there's one big thing they left out. The new Sprint LTE Plus network delivers faster download speeds than Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile. While Verizon seems to be focused on Tiny Balls, Sprint has been obsessively focused on building the network of the future. And to celebrate, Sprint is cutting their rates in half. Switch to Sprint and save 50% on most Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile rates. You get the new Sprint LTE Plus network with faster download speeds than Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile, and we'll even cover your cost to switch, up to $650 per line, only from Sprint. Better for less. Claim based on Sprint's analysis of average LTE download speeds using Nielsen NMP data. Speeds may vary. Offer coverage not available everywhere. Excludes taxes, surcharges, add-on, and premium content. Subject to new line port activation fee and credits. See website for eligible plans. Savings through one after pay full amount. Restrictions apply. Buy a Pre-Reward card after online registration and phone turn-in. BLOB TALK RADIO
1: for the beautiful music that she played at the beginning of the show. She is always a uh, an honor to have um to have her music on the show. We don't have her tonight, but we have her music which is just about as good. Tonight um is an interesting evening for us. Tonight we're going to be talking about who the heck was Shakespeare. Now, if any of you are like me, um and, and a lot of you are. You've done. You've had it. In, you took Shakespeare in college. You took Shakespeare in high school. And and we're probably overwhelmed by the language and the the way that, that things were put forth. And and probably we're very grateful you got a passing mark and you moved on. However, as an adult, I have come to more greatly appreciate the work of this amazing man. And there, there is a mystery connected to him, to the work, to who actually created it, if he did not, to if he was one or many people. But, but the bottom line we all have to remember is that he has contributed more to, to literature than any other author or authors, um, since the beginning of time. And, and while we've had great authors, we've never had one that had this, this scope and the breadth of what he covered was phenomenal. Um, I, I want to make it really clear to everybody this is not an attack. This is, this is sort of a fact hunting mission. I, I in no way want to in any way suggest I'm taking away from the magnificent amount of work that, that went into the, the, Body of work that, that is labeled Shakespeare, um, and, and I was looking around for ways to sort of lead into this program. I, I want you to understand that both, both James and I respect greatly the, the amount of work and, and, and the mastery behind it. However, the personage of the creator is, is kind of left up to question, so that's what basically we're going to be talking about tonight. Ben Jonson anticipated Shakespeare's dazzling future when he declared he's not of an age, but for all time, in the preface to the first folio on Shakespeare. Shakespeare's ability to summarize the range of human emotions in simple yet profoundly eloquent verse is perhaps the greatest reason for his enduring popularity. If you cannot find words to express how you feel about love, or music, or growing older, Shakespeare can speak for you. No author in the Western world has ever penned more beloved passages. Marchette Chute, in the introduction to her famous retelling of Shakespeare's stories, summarizes one of the reasons for Shakespeare's immeasurable fame. She says, William Shakespeare was the most remarkable storyteller that the world has ever known. Homer told of adventure and men at war, Sophocles and Tolstoy told of tragedies and of people in trouble. Terence and Mark Twain told comedic stories. Dickens told melodramatic ones. Plutarch told histories. And Hans Christian Andersen told fairy tales. But Shakespeare told every kind of story. story. Comedy, tragedy, history, melodrama, adventure, love stories, and fairy tales. And each of them so well that they have become immortal. In all the world of storytelling, he has become the greatest name. Shakespeare invented his share of stock characters, but his truly great characters, particularly his tragic heroes, are unequaled in literature, dwarfing even the sublime creations of the Greek tragedians. Shakespeare's great characters have remained popular because of their complexity. For example, we can see ourselves as gentle Hamlet, forced against his better nature to seek murderous revenge. For this reason, Shakespeare is deeply admired by actors, and many consider playing a Shakespearean character to be the most difficult and most rewarding role possible. Many of the common expressions now thought to be clichés were Shakespeare's creations. Chances are you use Shakespeare's expression all the time, even though you may not know it, is that it is the bard you are quoting. You may think that fact is neither here nor there, but that's the short and the long of it. Bernard Levin said it best in the following quote about Shakespeare's impact on our language. If you cannot understand my argument and declare it's Greek to me, you're quoting Shakespeare. If you claim to be more sinned against than sinning, you are quoting Shakespeare. If you recall salad days, you are quoting Shakespeare. If you act more in sorrow than in anger, if your wish is father to the thought, If your lost property has vanished into thin air, you are quoting Shakespeare. If you have ever refused to budge an inch or suffered from green-eyed jealousy, if you have played fast and loose, if you have been tongue-tied, a tower of strength, hoodwinked or in a pickle, if you have knitted your brows, made a virtue of necessity, insisted on fair play, slept not one wink, stood on ceremony, danced attendance on your Lord and Master, Laughed yourself into stitches, had a short shift, cold comfort, or too much of a good thing, if you have seen better days or lived in a fool's paradise, why be that as it may, the more the fool you, for it is for a foregone conclusion that you are, as good luck would have it, quoting Shakespeare." Um, I lost my place. (laughs) If you think it is early days and clear out bag and baggage, if you think it is high time and that that is the long and the short of it, if you believe that the game is up and that truth will out, even if it involves your own flesh and blood, if you lie low till the crack of doom because you suspect foul play, if you have your teeth set on edge at one fell swoop, without rhyme or reason than to give the devil his due, it's the truth well known, for surely you have a tongue in your head, you are quoting Shakespeare. Even if you bid me good riddance and send me packing, if you wish I were dead as a doornail, if you think I am an eyesore, a laughing stock, the devil incarnate, a stony-hearted villain, bloody-minded, or a blinking idiot, then by Jove, O oh Lord, tut-tut, for goodness sake, what what the dickens, but, but no buts. It's all one to me, for you are quoting Shakespeare. All of us have used his phrases. He invented over uh, 2,000 words. He is truly a man for all seasons. And it feels to me strongly as though his contribution or their contribution is something that, that you know we want to go back re- and revisit. I'm going to bring James on now because he is really far more erudite in all of this than I. Um, James Luce is, among other things, a Shakespearean actor. He has studied Shakespeare for—I I would love to say longer than I've been alive, but that's not true. Um, he is—he teaches it, he reads it, he studies it, and—and and it has become a part of his life. And he is the person upon whom I lean. For, for a greater understanding of the words that have been woven so beautifully in almost 40 plays, 154 sonnets, and two long narrative poems. James, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming and helping me with this wonderful, exciting adventure into Who the Heck Was
2: Shakespeare?,
0: Thank you so much for having me back. It is always a rare treat and privilege to be a guest on Nightlight. It is an immortal show and um <laughs> I just think it's a rare opportunity that two mediums, channels and clairvoyants are exploring Shakespeare because as you said as an actor um but I'm a medium, I uh go to my mediumistic friends. Uh, for clues in the texts all the time. I, I do a lot of scholarship, but I'm always um, trying to go back to 1595 or 1605 and, and find out what was really going on and why it was written this way. So um, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you.
1: Well, you know, he, he it, it, it is. I have to admit until just about a year ago, I never even questioned um, the authenticity of what I learned in a history book. But since 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 I've been doing the work I've been doing I have learned that you have to question everything and and in questioning Shakespeare there there are many um things that come up in 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 his origin and and you know we were all taught that you know he, he was born and he died and this was the the work that he did and that he wrote these plays and that he he played in them himself and and you know we 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 kind of just assume that that was exactly the way it was but but it's not so um you know it's it's kind of interesting because as you as you do research into um the man that they call the Stratford man whose name was William Shakespeare um you find that there is really no no written record of the fact that the man who was born in Stratford upon Avon um really wrote plays or acted in them or or was the master of linguistic poetry that the William Shakespeare that we studied is
0: it it's so true and um just uh, um having my own personal experience um last summer <laughs> I was Gremio in Taming of the Shrew um, in New York City. And this summer I was Camillo and Antigonus in The Winter's Tale. And there is about, I want to say, 1593, uh, 17 years difference in those two plays. Um, So uh, approximately. And um, just, it's like they were written by two other people, two different people. Um, about the only similarity you can find in The Winter's Tale, and and I'm sure scholars will come in and hit me on the head, but I'm not a scholar, I'm just an actor, is that um, the psychological insight and the psychological truth of of humors in the body in the Elizabethan context is very very accurate. The opening of the heart, um, the pain for love, the abuse, um, the possession by... um, a collar, um, the inflamement of jealousy. That is what is similar in the two plays, the psychology and the behavior of the characters. But if you look at the language and the humor and the gaps in the copying of the two plays, it's huge. It's—it's it's in, in many ways, you could also argue they were written by two different people. And one of the um, metaphysical teachers I study with as a medium, his name is Rand Jameson Shields, Um, When I've always asked him about Shakespeare when I've been in a role in a play or teaching it um, in, um, you know, teaching the acting of it or the directing of it in in college, um, he always says um, what he gets from angels and guides is it's three different people because um, the plays, um, it's that magical number three all the time. Um, the plays are comedies histories tragedies there are the romances and the pastoral plays which are problem plays but um he says it's at least three different people if if not uh, ghost writers and five or six or more because the language and the use of adaptation is different um i know so many people worship stratford and believe it's one person um I just I always get the feeling and the message that at that time in the golden age of Renaissance literature and in the middle of it you have Elizabeth the dying and James the First coming to the throne um there are groups of people writing plays, and th- one of the important things about Shakespeare um when I first started really studying him in nineteen ninety one is um he's not really an original playwright; he is the genius of adapters. You know, he's he is taking from Hollandshed all of the great Henry plays and and the great history plays, and he's taking from Plutarch all of the great Roman history plays, and um and he's so uh, from every Italian source uh p- possible and every historical source, he's using that for his plot and characters, and then whoever Shakespeare is. Something really psychologically divine is happening, knowing humors and possessions and rages and behavior. And then Shakespeare's version is um, the most linguistically, psychologically rich version of all all of these adaptations, because he is writing adaptations.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's something that that people have to understand that during that particular time, just about everybody had a, you know, uh, for one, uh, yeah, King Henry the Eighth, or, or whatever, and everybody told their own version of the story, and and these were these were plays that were put on for for the general population. Um, and actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but but weren't the, weren't the play weren't the plays generally meant for the common man, and 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 yet then then the royalty, you know, snuck in and they they did other versions for the royalty. But um, it's it, it sort of the it almost feels like some of the plays um were almost um what's the word i'm I, I, you know they were they were off the top of their heads. there was no script, and I think that's where some some of the problems um have have come in that there is there is a sense here of you know, one actor will play it one way and use his words and his verbiage and another actor will do that. And, you know, so so it's, you know, this is the point we want to get across and, and, you know, do it any way you want, but make this point type of thing.
0: Um, Since we're dealing with, we could say like 1591, 1592 to about, I don't know, 1612-ish, 1613, this is all approximation, um... The fifteen ninety plays, I would say, um, the prose in the fifteen ninety plays, having played Launce and Two Gentlemen, Peter Quince, and Midsummer. Um, I, I, one thing I, I, I read through much scholarship, I can't list the references, but the prose because Shakespeare writes in in two mediums, verse and prose, and uh-huh. and um, the prose. He was writing for specific actors in. Um, um, I forget what the first company was. The company in the 1590s. Somebody will call in. It's either the Lord Chamberlain's Men. It's not the King's Men. I think it's the Lord Chamberlain's Men in the 1590s. So the the famous clown in the mid 1590s is Will Kemp, um, and from scholarship I learned, and part of this comes from George Bernard Shaw. Um, Will Kemp did have syphilis, and he did improvise the prose sequences because a lot of the prose sequences you don't have to follow um, any kind of Homeric or versification or feet or meter. And in the prose, the um, the low comedy prose of uh, the low comedy improvisation, a lot of the malapropisms that make Dogberry famous, that make Launce famous, that make Nick Bottom famous, that make Peter Quince famous, and all of those low-comic characters in prose. Throughout the 1590s, we could say up to maybe about 1600, 1601, when Robert Armin became the chief clown. Um, some of them are from the improvisations of Will Kemp, um, who... Because he was dying of syphilis, the wrong word would come out of his mouth at the wrong time. And it was humorous enough that it was taken down in the foul papers of the company, in the book of the company, um, which was the Lord Chamberlain's men or the Queen's men in the 1590s. And it was kept.
2: Mm-hmm. So it,
0: the prose, uh, what I get from research is the prose was... Um, improvised. And then it became more set. And it was for the groundlings. And the way the theater was designed is you had the pit, which was the groundlings who wanted the sex humor, who wanted the body parts, um, who wanted... Um, the the humor about thievery, about money, about um, it, it, sex and different sexual positions. But if you go up to the boxes in the Globe, because this is in the 1590s and it's open just like it is in England right now, um, it was restored. You know, it it, um, it was built. You know, a replica of it was built where it is. You know, people study and it is staged. The higher boxes are. The queens, the noblemen, the aristocrats, the aristocracy, uh, the ministers of the Privy Council. So um, the verse is aimed at the high boxes, and the prose is aimed at, at the pit with the groundlings. And plays lasted six hours, you know, I mean it there was um there was comings and goings and and jeerings and things thrown up on the stage and then there was great silence so you really had to be um an actor of um in in a certain physical code in terms of gesture and a certain physical code in terms of voice but right. yeah so yeah but it is it is there is a, 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 there were there were books of the foul papers but it, nothing was published or really copied. Each company had them of the particular versions of the play. Well, I
1: think that's that's also one thing that that has led to some of the consternation about who was Shakespeare, because absolutely, it to my to my knowledge, and I've done some research, not a lot, but I've done some. Um, there are no um, there are no manuscripts in the hand of of William Shakespeare at all, so that there is. Uh, there is nothing that you know you can you can hit hit a manuscript and said here's Shakespeare's copy of you know A Midsummer Night's Dream or or whatever that that actually it, research has shown there are only um, six actual um, replicas of his signature um, that are known three of them are on his will and he's misspelled his name all three times and, and it's obvious that, that whoever was writing it did not write well. So that would infer that the Stratford man, and we're talking the Stratford man now, um could not possibly have penned all of these um all of these different um you know, tomes of of history and of comedy and of you know, fantasy and and of love. I mean, it it it. it the research has shown that he only went to um, to fundamental grade school, so to speak. And um, so yeah, it's called so La- it's,
0: I think it's called Latin school. He went to Latin school. Yeah. So the question is, which I'm just throwing out there, is how could he really have read Hollinshed? And then from all of the Hollandshed research of, of the founding of England and the Plantagenets and Henry Bolingbroke and Henry IV turned into, created a masterpiece of Henry IV, Part One, which is regarded by many as one of the greatest plays ever written in the English language. You, you, there is that question.
1: Well, and, it, and somebody did ask in the, in the chat room, you know, could he have been experiencing, um, you know, multiple personalities and... Um, in in I don't think so because in my experience, when when you when you tune into a a higher level of creative energy within you, when you get into the zone, whatever you want to call it, you you have you do indeed have a different voice than the voice you 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 spend in in, in general conversation.
2: But yes, it's a pretty absolutely. constant.
1: It's a pretty constant voice, and and so that that. Um, I, I, I don't be, I don't believe it could be multiple personalities. However, I would say that, that from what I have read that, you know, his his comedies and his his comedies especially were in, in one voice and his histories and his tragedies were in a different voice, inferring that, that there was a different level of intellect that was that was being utilized or being accessed in order for these to have been written. And the Stratford man did not have that kind of an education. Um, they, they say at least what research I've done has said that the people who lived in Stratford-upon-Avon Avon, Avon um, they during his time, nobody acknowledged him as a writer or a theater manager or an actor um he and and his wife or his children none of them claimed that he was this famous person who was doing all of these these plays and stuff um his parents were illiterate his children were illiterate so that so that you know you have this man that people point to and say this is the author and then you have no evidence that he actually did pen any of the work and so that said and you know, when he died, there was not a big to-do about it. Um, so that so that the 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 person that that we now claim, you know, 400 years later, to have been that person during his time, he was never you know acknowledged for the greatness that obviously he achieved. So the, that then poses the question: then who did write it?
0: And absolutely yeah and 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 the other um clues these are these are all clues is that um i've done the scottish play about 3 or 4 times um as small parts but um one of my favorite parts is hecate in the Scottish play, and uh, there are many scholars say Middleton wrote that, or I love the mm-hmm. first witch in the Scottish play, and people say, oh, Thomas Middleton wrote that, and I know Middleton's plays, and he wrote with Rowley, Thomas Middleton and William Rowley, he wrote, I don't know, about six to ten plays, um, he wrote The Changeling, which is totally a masterpiece and completely brilliant, um, but there were... Other writers, uh, because this was a golden age, especially, I want to say, after 1601 and the Queen's death and King James I, um, there were, um, uh, how, do, how do you want to say, you can, you can look especially at Hamlet, which goes on for six hours, there were sections contributed by another writer or edited by another writer or in the Foul Papers by the company they're a huge problem oh, okay section. wait, wait wait i got to interrupt you
1: you 've used yeah. the term a number of times, and if people aren 't familiar with this time period you you 've called them the foul papers. You want to explain to people what the foul papers are
0: uh, the papers are this is a don 't quote me as a scholarly definition. These are um from the version of the play um that is acted by the particular companies. And we have at least 12 different companies going on. Um, you know, what we could say from 1590 to 1610, we have 12, if not 15 different companies. Um, and they keep changing because of the shareholders and um, the money given them by the crown, etc. cetera. So um, the foul papers are what in 1623 went into the folio and they are what the company has of the play, and when we say foul papers, it's because you know you have parchment, you have paper. You know we're not in the in a sophisticated age, of course, um, with paper and lead and ink. So these are scraps of paper, pieces of parchment that have, um, and, and and the important thing because Shakespeare companies do this. The way they're accumulated by the company, the play is sewn together with rope on the parchment, is that um, each actor gets their part. They do not get the whole play. So, you know, we have in the library or in the safe or in the vault of, let's say, um, the Lord Chamberlain's men or, or the Queen's men, the early Shakespeare. Um, we have um, A Midsummer Night's Dream or we have A Julius Caesar in 1596. The Brutus just gets um, the parchment of, of, of what he says, which is all rhetorical verse out, out of Plutarch, out of Shakespeare. And he doesn't – he has to be alert and attentive on stage to know when he comes in, when he speaks. So these foul papers are collections of the roles. And gotcha. um and because it's written, this is the way all the companies are Christopher Marlowe, uh Ben Johnson, Cyril Turner, um uh Thomas Decker, um the Shoemaker's Holiday, all of these famous plays going on at the time. Um uh uh an actor um a role is written for an actor and an actor stays with the role um, for several years, if not for a decade. Wow. And, and that's so, somebody
1: Somebody asked in the um, chat room, you know, who consolidated the works for publication. Uh, the first folio was consolidated in 1623, and it was consolidated by Ben Johnson, sponsored by William Herbert, who was the third Earl of Pembroke. So I, I guess... I guess there were people that consolidated them and then pub- pub- published them as a folio. Is that how it went?
0: Um, yes. And um, uh, um, who is it? I can't remember. Um, Condal and Hemming, that were two originally, original members of the company. Condal and Hemming were part of the... Um, uh, Folio. They were they were part of the they were part of the folio. They were part of the and then there is and um, my uh, colleague Jack Cornwell, um, who was a, a scholar that um, I studied with last um, December. He knows the copier. There is a certain copier that did so much of the copying from foul papers because to put this thing, in other words, to put all these individual rolls and all these individual stacks of parchment. Into a play you know, yeah. <laughs> is impossible. I mean, you think? I mean, it, it's just time was different back then. And well, I think, and, it seemed,
1: and, yeah, and, and I think I, I, I want to
0: throw out there his name. It's wrong. It's something like Ralph Crane, somebody Crane, Ralph Crane, Rafe Crane. He's one of the main copiers that took all of these foul papers and copied them into an order that would resemble Julius Caesar.
1: Well, and, and this first folio didn't even come out until seven years after the death of the Stratford man, so that so that it took decades, apparently just about, to, to sort of assemble the work that was attributed to William Shakespeare. And that may have been one of the problems, because if there was nothing in writing, if it was just a matter of what was a company performing... And there was no way to to really, you know, you take one company's um, foul papers and then another company's foul papers, and you don't know which one comes closest to what actually the author had written.
0: The, the only, um, what we have in history, and as I said, scholars will refine this, is that um, I want to say, Lord Chamberlain's men, Queen's men, King's men, these were the companies that the Shakespeare plays appeared in, uh-huh. so that the the foul papers were c- because um even though we could say literary publication um, this was the golden age of literature um literary publication was lacking. What was not lacking was the abundance of the financing of different companies. So the company did own, own is not the right word, but the company did have the custodial preference of the particular version of the play. You know, they had the foul papers for that particular play. And they would, for instance, even though it's a 1592 play, um, and um, I don't particularly care for it because I had to act in it for seven months, but um, Two Gentlemen of Verona could be revived by even we could say the Lord Chamberlain's men in 1599 because uh, Will Kemp was still alive. He played Launce, And, and so, and there are papers, there are enough papers of each role that you can go back and refresh yourself. But you are trained in these companies that own the collections and the versions of the plays. Actors are trained so much um, to um um be indoctrinated and keep with with a, a selection of roles and the doubling um and and the doubling of the roles uh because a com- I think a company could be up to 23 people if not up to 30 you know the smallest number would be 12 um and as we you and I have discussed before you know there are huge um uh numbers of 14 to 18 year old boys that are playing the great female roles and uh-huh. and a lot of the company is 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 training vocally and physically in in mastering these characters. So um, yes, the, the individual versions of of these foul papers, of these collections, um, written on you know, written with graphite, written with lead, written with ink, um, are kept within the custodial monitors of each company.
1: Well, now then. <clears throat> It, it seems to me strange that that the identity of Shakespeare was really kept as a secret, apparently during the time, be- be- because you know all of this all of this Stratford and Oxford type stuff back and forth between the two of them. Um, this has taken place like in the 1800s forward, so that so that it, it was decades before people started to sort of question and say, wait a minute, who was this man? Because he couldn't possibly have had the background or the knowledge in order to do it. So, so as people started to say, okay, who was Shakespeare? Lots of different, um, lots of different opinions came out. I mean, frankly, it's, it's a profound amount of of material for one person who was struggling to feed a family, to have spent so much time in writing, especially the poetry and the prose—I mean, it's 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 a tremendous amount of work. One person, in my in my opinion, one person would have had a, a, a tremendous amount of difficulty, even into a 20-year period, to have written all of this, produced it, gotten it out there, and performed, and become, you know, an absolute icon for English literature. And, and you know, as, as I look at, at the history behind the man in Stratford, it appears to me that he did not have any of the credentials in order to do this. So then who do you attribute the authorship to?
0: I know, and that's been the big question when I was in undergrad um, doing Renaissance Lit um, because you would learn John Lilly who wrote Youth Aways. um he's a university wit, you have in the 1590s the university wits, Christopher Marlowe, the brilliant Christopher Marlowe, who wrote about six plays and then was brutally murdered um, you have John Lilly you have Thomas Kidd, who wrote The Spanish Tragedy, these are the late 1580s going to the 1590s um, they're all from um, um, Oxford, Cambridge University of London and, and, um, and they're producing and they are writing for companies um, and and then later you have the extraordinary John Webster uh, writing the Duchess of Malfi, writing the the White Devil. You have Thomas Middleton and John Rowley, as we mentioned before. Um, you have Beaumont and Fletcher, um, who are uh, um, writing um, almost as many plays as Shakespeare, but there are two of them, so they're very industrious. And, um so this is the golden age, and everyone's everyone's writing, but no one combination, not John Webster, not Cyril Turner, um not Christopher Marlowe, certainly not the great Ben Johnson even is writing mm-hmm. thirty seven plays no one's writing well, thirty seven plays
1: and and you know, and there is a theory also that that Edward de Vere, the seventeenth Earl of oxford um was was the author of all of it. And he at least had the time. You know? Um and and you know, can you talk a little bit about him? Do you know a little bit about him?
0: No, I I, I, I I'm not a scholar. I'm sorry. Maybe one of your great listeners will call in, but um <laughs> uh, well, I I can, I'm an actor. I can talk I can talk about Jacobean language and I can talk uh-huh. about copy errors and I can talk about the time. Um What I get, though, um, I think John Madden, um, when he directed, and Tom Stoppard, when when he wrote Shakespeare in Love, you know, there's there's even though some of the some of that movie is silly, Shakespeare in Love, what they do show is in 1595, even though it's historically inaccurate. What is historically accurate is that every author, like John Webster, is young in that movie. Um, Mm -hmm. Every author is stealing from his contemporaries and his colleagues. And and everything is an adaptation and everything is being moved around and used again. And then you have Inigo Jones staging masks like there's a mask that completely follows Midsummer Night's Dream that Inigo Jones, I think, wrote or Ben Johnson wrote because Ben Johnson wrote a lot of masks. So everyone is stealing and lifting from each other. Yeah, um, it,
1: it, it appears that this was a time where where there was it, copyright did not exist. Apparently,
0: never at um, all, not at all, no.
1: So so that so that basically um, the feeling I get is that some people would sneak in and st- you know sit there b- below the stage, writing down as much as they could to take back home and change and shift around into their own words because the stories were good. But but apparently, and the stories
0: were from Hollinshed, Plutarch, many Italian authors, Boccaccio. Um, Yeah, the the stories are are huge. You know, they're all they're all from great um, Italian Roman authors. Mm -hmm. So yes, absolutely. Um, Pandosto, that was the source of Winter's Tale, is by an Italian author. I forget the name. Twelfth Night is from an Italian author, farewell to the military, um, Twelfth Night is, which is one of the most brilliant plays ever written, in my opinion. Um, but yes, you 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 get that, um, uh, and and you, you get, for instance, in As As You Like It, um, some of it is from a pre-existing um, French tale, um, in uh, and the Rebellion of the Two Kings, and then some of it in the Forest of Arden. Is Shakespeare's genius a lot of you know the uh, critics and scholars will say well Shakeways and as you like it is Shakespeare's invention. There's a lot of characters like Gremio and Timmy of the Shrew. It's Shakespeare's invention, and Shakespeare is taking these from Commedia dell'arte. He's taking these from people he knows, or if it's Shakespeare, however it ends up in that collection in that play. The other point I wanted to make though is um, in the King's Men in. Uh, the Lord Chamberlain's men, Richard Burbage, um, the great leading actor. So many scholars say, you know, there would not have been Shakespeare's Hamlet if there wasn't Burbage. Um, Othello was written for Burbage. Hamlet was written for Burbage. The Scottish play was written for Burbage because he had the ability and the talent to enact and live the high levels of tragedy. So whoever Shakespeare is over the 37 plays, in that particular company, he is writing for specific actors or the plays are yeah. being constructed for specific, like Will Kemp. There is the, there is the scholarly document. The clowns change. The clowns in up to about 1599, 1600, Will Kemp. After 1601, it's um, Robert Armin is the clown. Robert Armin is feste in Twelfth Night. The clowns are more elegant. The clowns are more witty. The clowns use language. The clowns are not as base. Um, so there, there is for a particular company and people that we know lived writing going on for those people, similar to Moliere, which would happen in 1665. You know, 1668. Moliere was writing for specific people in his company. So whether it was Shakespeare or not, parts are written or parts are accumulated and devised for these particular actors.
1: Gotcha. Well, then, then you know, as we as we look you know i i i have seen um what was the movie about um shakespeare not not shakespeare in love but um anonymous anonymous yes yes um it, you know again another another trying to explain who actually wrote the work and and in that particular movie it was it was devere and and it it does it does kind of give you an idea that whoever the words whoever wrote the words had to have had an education had to have traveled had to have a um some you know understanding of of the life of court and stuff like that, and the um Stratford band didn't have any of that so that so that it's a matter of of um just just taking a look at what what you had to be. What what you had to have the kind of of knowledge wisdom whatever you had to have and and I, I go back to vocabulary and voice all the time because uh it, it it in order to in order to have the flow of and the rhythm and the magic and the mastery of the language you have to have. So you know you can't describe chocolate ice cream if you haven't tasted it, and you can't describe the the, the verbiage of the court unless you've been there and the Stratford right. man had definitely not been there
0: that, so, yes. yeah it's it's some some university educated people are contributing, as scholars will say, Middleton, you know, in in the Scottish play, people will say Middleton wrote that, or that's Mm -hmm. by Middleton, or that's possibly by Middleton, you know. (laughs) know? Yeah, no, I, Um, I,
1: you know, it's, what I find fascinating is the work is timeless, absolutely, but we haven't, you know, we never started to question it until about the 1800s, and then it was like, suddenly, everybody was looking around saying, wait a minute, something is wrong here.
0: Yes, and, and, or, or how could, um, and, and a lot of it was the forgiving of the copiers, like, oh, there's so many gaps in Taming of the Shrew, or there's so much illogic, and and they would say, oh, 1593, 1594, that's an early play, and, and not all the copy came through. And there's like a gap, and as you like it, it's very much um, like the um, Aristotle's um, poetic, Poetics, What Comes Down from the Library at Alexandria, which burnt you know mm-hmm. there are certain aspects of of comedy that are le- that are left out of the poetics it's lost you know um and people would eat a small um there is so much i've read so many scholarly um the oxford the cambridge the Arden, the Arden is a really brilliant edition. The Riverside is a brilliant edition of Shakespeare. And you go, well, this copy of Ralph Crane, or this copier's edition, or this particular part of the folio, and then there's a quarto. You know, there's the folio, there's the quarto. There's several editions. There were, I think, about, I could be wrong, 12 different versions of Hamlet going on in 1601. The thing that's the most amazing about Shakespeare's is, is the character behavior um mm-hmm. because hamlet as a, as a um um and an original it, it is a danish legend and and it and the original versions of it use different character different character names for polonius and claudius but um shakespeare's the the version that has the shakespeare name on it has the extraordinary psychological behavior within the language that um is is m- much more elevated than any other version going on.
1: Okay. Well, now let me just ask you. I mean, okay. So there were all of these different versions. Um, who's to say that Shakespeare's was the best ver- version? I mean, it just. I mean, is it because his work happened to be in a folio and therefore it survived, and others did not? I mean. Uh, you know, not not being able to have seen more than one version of a of a particular story, I, I'm wondering why is it that his work has survived and and the others have not?
0: I would say, I mean, this is just me as a practitioner that you know the Puritans killed everything in 1642, and they took off uh, Charles I's head in 1648 so you uh-huh. had a black period of no plays, no writing, no poetry. I mean, there was writing and poetry going on, but it was very controlled by Oliver the 1st and Oliver the 2nd and the Lord Protectorate it was called a Protectorate. Um the in 1660 is the Restoration and Charles the 2nd, Charles Stuart is b- brought back on the throne. Um and and women are allowed on stage. Um you have a lot of Restoration versions from great university playwrights trained in France, trained in England that come out of exile because there is a king that endorses the arts on the throne. And a lot of the great actors and acting company that the king this king Charles II finances very much like Elizabeth financing Shakespeare's company and all the other companies, um they resurrect um the plays. And for instance, Thomas Betterton um, loved Othello um, a, 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 as a restoration actor. He loved Othello. So he resurrected all the different versions, the folio, the quarto. Um, there were other great, great, great actors um, that uh, in the restoration that resurrected, that brought out of mothballs Shakespeare's Hamlet. And Shakespeare's Hamlet, is the most juicy. And therefore in the 18th century you have David Garrick doing it. Um so I mean you have throughout the restoration so many great actors doing their own version of Hamlet or using Shakespeare as the as the blueprint, as the paradigm to base a Hamlet on. But you have another golden age of theater beginning in 1660. Um you can say all the way up maybe to 1700. Um possibly, and, and beyond. Um, and that is, um, that is why a lot of Shakespeare comes down. I would, I would say, and this is just my conjecture, it's because when Charles II opens up the liberality of many playing companies, a lot of astute actors, producers, scholars, and writers go into, go into the folio, they go into the quartos, they write their own versions, or they do that. You know they they do the actual quarto, and then in the 1800s you have like Keane and Irving, the great great British actors, trying to do the exact Elizabethan. Harley Granville Barker trying to do the exact Elizabethan versions. But I, mm-hmm. I would say we owe a lot we owe a lot to the regime of Charles II that brings all of all of these incredible manuscripts out of mothballs or out of suppression from um, the Puritan Revolution
1: gotcha because you know it and it 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 really during the time of shakespeare it was actually not considered um appropriate for anybody
0: of noble
1: birth to be writing plays or anything like that and that's why that's why um they talk about um the the earl of of oxford um you know sort of using shakespeare as a um as a pen name, and in a lot of, apparently, in a lot of the publications and a lot of the folios, um, Shakespeare's name is hyphenated, you know, shake hyphen spear, in in other words, saying that, that, you know, this is a pseudonym for someone who is shaking a spear at something else or someone else, so that it's a pen name. So, So that there was a period of time where Shakespeare was hyphenated and, and 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 here's another place where i say okay if it was a pen name who was it a pen name for was it a pen name for someone who didn't have a name is it a, and they couldn't find the author was it a pen name for somebody who was hiding from notoriety um you know what what was going on there
0: and i just i just want to say what i get from from the plays that have the legitimate authors like beaumont and fletcher like uh-huh. decker like Middleton and Rowley, um, they and especially in the Restoration, they they do say in their prefaces, or they they will say, and this piece is penned by so and so. I mean, you know, when when things began to get printed after sixteen twenty, um, and and e- even more with the other authors. It's not just one person that wrote everything. Maybe Webster did on a few of his plays. You know, he has three brilliant plays, John Webster. But, mm-hmm. I mean, everyone is, is chipping in, and, and some of the gracious authors are saying, oh, this section was written by Decker, or this was contributed by Rowley, um, or this epilogue is by Rowley. Or So, in other words... Um, um, with Shakespeare, it is it, as you say, it is fascinating because there is so much, and there is nothing around it, such as with a Middleton or a Webster saying, "Oh, and so and so chipped in here," and so there's just a scholarly conjecture that other people might have contributed to it. Because as you're right, I mean, how can you know historical and court behavior so well? Y- you can read Hollinshed, yes, and but. You can't get the intimacy. Hollinshed is, is historical documents and it's brilliant, but you can't get the intimacy of language and behavior between characters you get in Henry IV I, Henry II, Henry V, Richard II. You, you, can't, you can't get that from Hollinshed. You can get all the facts and characterization to a degree, but there's, there's some writer in there, and it could be who knows who it is, that is really crafting characterization.
1: Yeah, and and you know it, it's it's funny because usually people have a genre that they are really really good at, and and it's, it's you know <clears throat> my the kind of writing I do is more of a um, I don't know a spiritual academic type whatever, uh, and and you know maybe a little bit of comedy here and there, but but you have you have your beautiful poetry you have your prose that is just phenomenal and then you have your 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 comedies that you've written the tragedies and then the histories and and you know i have very basic stuff but but it seems to me that those are different voices almost as though it's different people. You can't, I, 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 I can't say you can't absolutely, but I could not change my voice to the degree of expertise that whoever did these these different works was able to do, because frankly tragedy has a has a different kind of feel and flow and rhythm to it, comedy yet another um uh, flippant satire um and and tragedy well maybe you know satire and tragedy often do go together but 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 you know the bulk of the work, the intensity in his historical tragedies are just unbelievable. And yes, and, yes. and and then the lightheartedness of, of uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, yes. Totally, totally different feel for it. I mean, you pick up a book and you read a book, you get a feel for the rhythm of the author. You pick up different plays of Shakespeare, and those are different rhythms. There are absolute different rhythms, and I don't understand how they did it so brilliantly.
0: Yes, and... And the fourth since I just did the winter's Tale, the fourth category, or like the fourth group of people, as you know my teacher ran Jameson Shields you know channel you know there's there's like three people or three different groups of people with the comedy histories and tragedies the, the romances, the pastoral plays, the problem plays, and that's Cymbeline winter's tale, um Timon of Athens, Pericles prince of tyre um uh possibly the Tempest um it, it, the plays at the end of his career uh, taking apart the winter's tale as i just did um it, it is so um remote from hamlet in 1601 it's 1611 and it's even so um um remote or or divergent from uh, we could say um, Antony and Cleopatra, which is my favorite play, which I think is a total work of genius. Um, and I think that's 1609, um, it, it, possibly 1607, I'm not sure. But 1611, The Winter's Tale, the language, the sentence structure, the thought structure um, is um, it, 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 the simplicity of Two Gentlemen of Verona or Midsummer Night's Dream or Love's Labor is Lost is far gone. This is, you know, if we look at the court of James I here, I mean, this language is so embroiled and tangled up. And the people in the play are that way too. I mean, the language really dictates the character. But um, either a, a great psychologist or a medium was writing it and channeling it, <laughs> because it's completely different than anything to come before it. It's a whole different period of writing is in 1611 in The Winter's Tale. Um mm-hmm. and just and and then you look at it technically um with with verses and feet and ams and the enjambments, the endings, nothing is classically fit in in the winter's tale it's very broken um it, because the characters are incredibly paranoid schizophrenic um passionate falling apart um losing their minds uh um and and the language and the feet and the meter and the metrics are like that too i, I mean it's nothing really clear like richard the is an incredibly clearly written play of of like um 1594 um you know he, 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 so. sell there is, yes, as you're saying, whoever wrote the, it's a whole different viewpoint on language. It's a whole different point of view on language and character in the later plays than in, than in 1599, 1596. Completely different.
1: Now, <clears throat> knowing that that as we grow, as we evolve, as we shift and change, and as our our, our intellectual knowledge. Literally expands. That could give you a different take on the voice that you're writing with. But it just it just feels to me as though it has to be almost a group of people doing it. And what would the reason be, or or you know? And I know you don't know for sure, but can you can you kind of take a wild guess at? Um, you know, what would the reason be that people would not want their their names to be put on material, would not want credit for a brilliant piece of work?
0: Well, there's a lot of politics going on. Um, um, yeah, the, the scholarship I've read uh, about the death of Elizabeth and the end of Elizabeth's reign because she really did consolidate England and she was the last of the Tudors and she had no heir. Um and she passed in sixteen oh one. So um there is um all all of the um plays referencing kingship or the gunpowder plot with James the First or Rebellion or Elizabeth in Essex or any of 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 that um it's it's it, 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 it was dangerous. It, it was it was um tempting to write about it, but it was dangerous to Put an actual name to it um if you're writing a history or anything political or or a um a, a romance or um uh, any any kind of tragedy. The other point um this could be minor, but in Hamlet there's a lot of prose it's usually caught there's a lot of prose that is satirizing and attacking um the companies of boys in Blackfriars. Um, and the companies of boys, it's like there are now theater companies just entirely of boys, so that the 14 to 18-year-old boys, maybe up to 21, they're trained, they're not only playing women's parts, but they're playing the the senior, more older tragedian roles. And um, there is a lot of um, satire and attack of them in Hamlet. Um, there's a lot of politics between theater companies written in Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's usually cut, it's in the player's scene. And um, ah. it's a code, and and my my other point is so that's why they don't want to um I guess nobody wants to put their name on it. I mean I could be completely wrong, but there's a lot of code going on in these plays about what's happening at court, in the privy council, and just between companies in London and the plague and murders and and you know and we have looking back and I don't know the exact date. Um, please forgive me, my English professors at William and Mary, but I don't think the exact <laughs> date of Marlowe being stabbed in the head—you know, the 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 horrific murder of Kit Marlowe, who was like totally genius—I want to say 1594. It was something like that. So the the whole point is, we you got murders going on, you've got politics going on with the writing of these things. So it it makes sense that it would happen under um, a pseudonym name. And it would be ghost writers because there is, you know, there's a lot of politics going on, and a lot of things are being said in code.
1: Well, yeah, and even even today, you know, when you really want to take a pot shot at, at government or whatever, um, it's it's always safer to do it anonymously because uh, you just never know what's going to come back and get you, you know, have have them um, tapping your phone and everything. So. And I would assume, I would assume assume too, especially if if there were people of nobility that that you know they probably had the more in on you know where the scandal was and to to let people know that they knew could have been very very dangerous for them.
0: Absolutely, and and. Like we know Christopher Marlowe, I don't, he, he was involved in all kinds of intrigue. He was a totally brilliant writer out of the university. All kinds of intrigue, spying, spies, smuggling. There's all kinds of – there was a play, a British play on the London stage, I want to say 15, 20, uh, 10 years ago, called The School of Night that was about him. Um, it might have been by David Edgar. I'm just not sure. Um, but um, a lot of it was taken from actual research and what is known – so it is dangerous it was dangerous we were living in dangerous times
2: mm-hmm. so
0: to disguise one's name as uh you know because it once you set it on stage it is like the nightly news i will say this when the you say something on stage in the king's men or in the the blackfriars company or at blackfriars after james the first there's a lot of indoor theaters in the middle temple you say something on stage in a play um it's around the city. It's 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 like gossip. It's like the nightly news. Mm-hmm. You know, a new play comes out, and people are ridiculing certain certain aspects of kingship. Um, they're ridiculing certain aspects of uh, foreign policy, and that's why you know, like the, the 1588, the Spanish Armada. Um, the Spanish are all given a big send up in, in at that time. <laughs>
1: so in a way shakespeare is synonymous with anonymous
0: probably so, that, so yes
1: so so that um and, and you know i don't have an opinion one way or another except i'm pretty sure that the stratford man was not the man that wrote all of this um just from everything that i've dug up about him um he was not capable of it just not capable but but it does feel to me as though there may have been um, someone who may have written some of the plays that, that actually, uh, I, I, I it's such a huge amount of work, I can't see how one person could have done it. But, but you know, they do talk about um, the Earl of, you know, Deville, Deville, Devere, De Vere
0: De Vere De Vere yes
1: um they they do talk about De Vere and and I would I would say that I would be very comfortable in saying that I feel that he wrote some of it um they do say about his the poetry the sonnets that 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 definitely may have been him writing to Southampton um so you know you just don't know
0: exactly e- exactly and um i uh uh the, uh the the uh, the other the other thing is when when I've had mediums such as yourself channel the actual Shakespeare from stratford um and I know the Stratfordians are going to hate me for this but one of the uh, surmises I just get intuitively is i don't if he went off and became an actor, yes that's one thing. I think he was an actor, possibly, in one of the companies, Shakespeare, you know? But mm-hmm. um, the Anonymous movie, you know, has – it's Oxford is writing it, and the real Shakespeare is this foolish actor in the bar, in the pub, and and which um, makes a lot of sense. Because the, my point being, um, did this man from Stratford have the sense – and the, the, the education, not the sense, just the education to read Hollinshed, to read Plutarch. You know, could he? No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, you know, I mean,
0: yeah, and, and, and that's how he got the plots of the plays. That's how he got his plays. The, whoever it was read Hollinshed and Plutarch and then did their own version. But you've got to be able to sit down and read all of this scholarly high-level material to begin with.
1: Absolutely, and and you know it, it was, it's fascinating because you know you go back to it, and and he they have him on record as owning shares in an acting company, yes. But they don't have anything. They don't have a record of anything that he ever acted in.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And and yeah. to you know I think it's it's sort of like if you've never. Acted. If you have no understanding of stage front, stage left, stage right, up, up, up or down stage, I mean, um, you just you can't do it. You can't do it as beautifully as as. Of course, now the work that we look at is, has been polished and polished and polished and polished. It's, it's very much like. Um, most things that you know, I, I go back to the Bible. Um, most of the the um, the books of the Bible were not written by the people whose names they bear because most of yeah. those people were illiterate. So a scribe of some sort was taking stuff down, and then exactly. somebody cleaned exactly. up the scribe's work, and then yeah. the stuff has been been translated from from one language to Latin and from Latin to English and then to Old English. Exactly. I mean. So so among your translations and your dictatorial stuff the real meat of what was actually said is totally gone and yes. and 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 so it it's sort of like okay we know that you know you I I would I'm wondering here if if really the brilliance is is not so much in who wrote the play but who was copying the words down and making them rhyme and seem like they should rhyme.
0: Well, that's also really true because I'm look at winter's tale is the one I just took examined the entire script and the writing for, but um, there are so many, um, you look at the original, you look at the folio and, and you look at the folio, what's, and there's a way of acting that you look at the folio and what's capitalized and what's not, and what does it mean? But there's so many times you have the question of the copier um, is this a line of verse or not? Um, because the line is set in in verse and then it ends up in prose. And it, 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 in other words, there's a lot of questions. And so it is the typesetter and the copier that's deciding, is this verse or is this prose uh, in, in many cases? And, and And what the exact words are because it's coming from foul papers so you just don't know. <laughs> and with the Bible like Yale School of um Yale School of Divinity teaches the book of Mark was written by 23 people.
2: You mm-hmm. know the book of
0: Mark is a lot of oral history written by 23 people. It's not written by Mark and it and it comes down to us from the legends of 23 people. So it it is very much like the Bible in in many cases. You're you're absolutely right. It
1: just it seems to me you know who, whoever, whoever, or what group, who, whom, or, or you know, what group? It, it doesn't. It, it, what I'm fascinated by is that it has been put under one heading, and and maybe, maybe it shouldn't be taught as a person, but maybe a, as, um, a consciousness. Maybe it should be taught as as more or less of a, a unique way of expression as opposed to a single man's work because certainly certainly the message given and and I mean my my goodness he invented or Shakespeare the Shakespearean forum um created over 2000 words and and all of those little quotes that I read in in the early part of the show I mean uh, I think most of us have utilized most of them at one time in our life and not realized that they came from William Shakespeare's um, time frame or body of work. And, and I think more or less now I, I would be more inclined to refer to Shakespeare as a body of work from the 1600s more so than this is a man who created all of this. I don't, I don't think that it was a singular man. It couldn't have been.
0: Yes. Yeah. Do you have any callers calling in about this at all?
1: Nobody wants to, to tear us apart yet.
0: So we haven't <laughs> we, we haven't offended
1: enough people. <laughs>
0: um, okay. Okay. I, well, I, I do I don't have to know. say, I I do have to say, in in researching all of these editions for every part I've done, and I've been doing Shakespeare uh, for about thirty years. Um, um, he, he is it is um, treated. Uh, every play, it's treated in its genre. It's also treated by its source material. Um, Mm -hmm. And and it's treated like um, this is how um, it is lifted by the writer or writers or by the king's men or the queen's men or the lord chamberlain's men. It is lifted. So the source material is published. Um, You like Pandosto, which is the Italian, which is the winner's tale was taken from it. You have the actual you you'll have you have the prose um essay novel novella that is and and the same thing with like the life of Cleopatra in in um Plutarch or the life of Julius Caesar or Coriolanus in the roman plays um you you have um uh every play you get the source material and then you get the copier and you get the company and the time it was written and you also receive um if you can't scholarly you you get um testaments from the nobility in journals in diaries um i went to see such and such um at the swan or at the globe last night i went to see such and such at the Blackfriars. um, um th- this um was uh and uh, A lot of times, it's not even mentioned, or it might be mentioned as an afterthought. It's by Mr. Shakespeare. Um, Like, for instance, it's important to know Twelfth Night, one of the most brilliant plays ever written, um, premiered in a law school, which was called The Middle Temple in London, um, during a dinner break. Um, in law school, (laughs) Um, on on a cafeteria stage. We would think of it contemporarily. You know, it's on a wooden stage. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, by the company, you know, um, in 1600, um, 1601, it premiered. So there's a lot of legal satire in that play for the young lawyers inside, in, in the dining room, in the captive audience um there's a lot of satire of romance there is some of the most brilliant love poetry ever written but there's a lot of legal satire um in in, in the play and um it's it, it, it every when we are studying you know when you look at each play there's so much um Research that has gone into the individual play, it was created from this. It was, it was, it has been performed here. It has been changed here. It has been changed here. We don't know about the copier here. We don't know about the quarto here. We don't know about the folio here. But we're making surmises. So, um, well, the original. Well, Francis
1: Bacon, you know, Francis yes. Bacon had an amazing law background,
0: and yes, he's in one so of he the. Could have he, it. Yeah. You know, because it used to be. I remember when I was growing up, it was before Oxford. It was Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare. It wasn't Shakespeare; it was Francis Bacon. When I was growing up, that was the. Um, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But you know, it makes it makes also great sense that the people of the time. Um, I I don't think they ever. You know how sometimes we do things, never anticipating it's going to last forever, and then it does, and we're horrified. Right. Um it feels to me like there may well have been a group of people who who got together this sounds very irreverent and I apologize to everyone I'm about to offend it's almost like these these this group of intellectuals got together and said let's create a persona and we're all going to write as him and and screw with the heads of everybody that is you know comes after us and and it all it, you know how um dracula um was was a weekend frolic you know it was like let's all let, let's see who writes the best um horror story um right what if it was that what if it was a whole bunch of drinking nobles who got together and said hey let's let's just really screw with the the heads of of, of people in the future and let's all write under the same pseudonym and 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 just see what happens and and it, it could have been that easy it could have been you know i'm going to write a tragedy you write a comedy you write a a fantasy and and you know all all people that had of course the education and the background and and, and the 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 um the talent with painting with words so that so that you know there was a similarity only because they came from the same level of society.
0: Well, yeah, th- and that's uh, very similar to the university wits in, in the 1590s. You know, they, they came out of university training, and that that's perfectly logical that that, that, that happened because um, over the 20 years, we could say like 1590 to eh, 1612, 22 years, um, 1613, um, um, there are particular events um, in society that a Shakespeare play is pointing to and satirizing and sending up and exposing. Um, uh, I, as I said, with the Spaniards, there, there. I mean, there's the Spaniard in *Love's Labour's Lost* it's completely ridiculous because there's always been a great hatred and great controversy of course between England and Spain Charles V uh-huh. uh, Philip II of course um uh Catherine of Aragon Henry the Henry VIII's um first wife and um, it, that carries into, of course, the Armada, 1588. Then we have the Spanish Tragedy, 1589. And and the, the Elizabethans see the Spanish as really bloody, passionate, crazed, um, uh, you know, Catholic-infested people that are out of their minds, you know. And so they make a lot of fun of it, you know, <laughs> or like uh, Christopher Marlowe did with the Jew of Malta. And and the nuns. I mean, they do the same thing with with um with 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 Jews. They realize the the Elizabethans realize that the Jews are are brilliant in usurers and and but there there is they are different in society. So we have the Merchant of Venice. And uh-huh. one of the most extraordinary characters ever written, which is Shylock. But we have the Jew of Malta from Christopher Marlowe. Um, it's the same thing with African Americans, with Aaron the Moor and Othello the Moor, um, and um, it's it's uh, it's the, the way the current uh, presence in court and in London um, is uh, of of a particular ambassador of a particular philosopher of of somebody from the far east somebody from um Africa um is is going to appear in a play uh, you know it, it, there there there's a satire or there is a political mention that is going to be made of them in in this period of of the golden age of writing and i don't mean to say it stops in 1623 cuz it really goes on i want to say till 1640 and then the Puritans kill it. But um uh but I, I, I think I think what you're saying, that group of people that are from the university and I, I think it happens. I think it because you know, we don't get any more plays like Henry the Fourth one and two by the time we hit sixteen oh five. We don't get right. that and, anymore.
1: And and look at look at um just just currently we have like the Urantia book now that that's a a brilliant piece of channeled material, but it it has so many different contributors that not one person is is listed really as the author of it, yet it is an amazing um um body of material that has a spiritual connotation to it and and it just feels like like shakespeare the term shakespeare uh you know they 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 um there are references to it shaking a spear um you know kind of rattling a spear kind of um trying to rattle the people of the times to to look at and to pay attention to things that that are not um appropriate so yes. so it yes. It, it, yes. it it makes sense to me that that Shakespeare shaking the spear, trying to shake the um the um establishment so to speak, and point at their, their, their foibles and their shortcomings. And yes. this is a brilliant a brilliant way to do it because Shakespeare can't be found to prosecute.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: I've come up with a whole new theory doing this, James. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, no I've, I've always thought, because in going into the language, and you have to act this stuff, it's like, this is not the same person they wrote Taming of the Shrew*. This is not the same person. And to me, a really hard play, and there are people that love it, like Two Gentlemen of Verona, I played Launce for four months in stock, and, it, and it's like, I'm going, this play, this is really difficult to do this prose. And then you find out, Will Kemp, on syphilis, improvise this, it's illogical, it's funny, you have to get the sense of it and then get the language, but it's improvised by a a mind that is in delirium because it's dying of syphilis. I mean, if you really realize the actors, I think also it is the actors in the company. It's written for the actors in the company. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. the thing in my heart. Whoever is writing, and it could be Condole and and definitely Francis Bacon, who threw money at the company. I'm sure he wrote some of it. Of course the Earl of Oxford. I think and and always, as I said, every medium I ask, it's it's a group. It's a group of ghost writers. It's a group. But they're writing in this company, these companies. They're writing for the specific actor.
1: Well, you know, not only that, but I think they they wrote in tandem from time to time, I, I, I feel like they may have, you know, gotten together and, and, you know, conspired to create. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, you know, I, I, I don't mean to take away from any of it because it's brilliant, brilliant work. It really is. I, I just wish the heck I understood half of it. Um, it, it's, it's, it's the, the, the language of court of the time was so difficult to understand that I'm surprised anybody got anything done.
0: Well, also, um having taught the the language, the thing I would say is, um this is a time um, spiritually, you know, because we've been bashing the Catholic Church, and you know we've had Bloody Mary, and now we have Elizabeth, who is an Anglican queen who's founding the Church of England, which is what Henry VIII wanted. And I'm making this very simplistic, so I'm sure scholars can call in and refute me. But the whole point is we have from um, the greatness of... um, of Sir Francis Bacon in his writings of, of, of John Locke later in the 1600s, but we especially have in, in Burton, in the anatomy of melancholy of the 1590s, 1580s, we have the Elizabethan chain of being. We have the belief from the um, Areopagus, Areopagitica, we have the belief in the nine orders of angels, the nine orders of devils. And then we have the nine orders of the elementals of the, of the earth spirit world. And then we have the world of the humans. And then we have the world of the animals and the insects. All of this is the Elizabethan chain of being. And then we have in, in the humans... You know, we we have the and that is why you have the over striving in all of these plays in Christopher Marlowe in Doctor Faustus in the Faust legend. We have the striving in Richard the Third of William Shakespeare. The, of there's there's someone born at a certain station in the chain of being and they want to be chosen by God, to be a king, because the king in the chain of being has. The angels sitting on their shoulders and in back of them, advising them. These angels are the dominions, the principalities, the sovereignties. These angels that come down to rule and govern. And this is what the Elizabethans believed. This is what they truly believed. Some Germans believed it. Um, You know, Spain was locked up into the Catholic thing. But it it is a huge, wide uh, Greek, Coptic church Um, elizabethan area of writing of english scholarship that we have the chain of being and all of these plays that are written by all the many different authors and you know i'm talking about cyril turner and i'm talking about beaumont and fletcher i'm talking about all of them correspond and and make reference to and are written within this chain of being um and and, and, so that's why you have the overreaching that's why you have the visitation of the ghost that's why you have the visitation of angels and and the language um does reflect the level of the chain of being um like if you were to translate the the low comedy slang of the drunkard the drunkards um for instance in the tavern scenes in um Henry the 4 part 1 um that it that is the slang that's going on in the pub down the block um whereas the, the the elevated verse is approaching angelic visitation spirit visitation nobility of sacrifice and what the chain of being wants humans to do to approach the angelic realms so a lot but of the, the languages go ahead
1: yeah. Yeah, I, I just, you know, when, when I when you talk about a lot of it was written for the pit, for the ground, for the, the, the common folk. They did not talk that way. Did they?
0: No, that's why you have, like, every third scene you have in prose in so many plays. In Winter's Tale, the second half of the play has a rogue that steals everybody. It's written in prose, and it's written in very guttural language.
2: Okay. You know.
1: So, 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 yeah. So, well, so they were, they were, they were, you know, trying to hit high and low, I guess. And, and so, that's it. Wow. Be- because when I when I read some of these and I think, okay, I'm a peasant. I have no education. You know, I I I toil in the fields and I slosh in the mud and I haven't the faintest idea what those guys on stage are talking about. So, okay. So if there's prose in the, you know, after every scene that kind of tells you what what is going on, that that helps a lot. It's almost like you know having the play be in one language and having to have a translator. It's it's, it's it. No, you know what? It's even more like it's like when when you have a deaf per, deaf person and there's somebody up there talking and there's somebody on the side doing all the hand signals so that so that you know you understand what's going on.
0: If the actor in in this in this in this day and age, if the actors are trained, um, by Shakespeare and Company, by Juilliard, by various other institutions in clarity, you should be able to get it. Especially if the director is a storyteller, you should be able to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, um, it it is in the reading, and 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 then there is the thing, um, a debate in scholarship. Shakespeare, all of those plays, but a lot of scholars come down and say Shakespeare is meant to be seen and heard. That is why um, my um, sophomore English teacher um, made us get up and uh, in high school, act out Julius Caesar. We watched films and we acted it out because she said, you have to speak it, you have to move it, you have to hear it, you have to see it. It, you just can't sit and read it as a Renaissance treatise. It's not going to work. Okay.
1: Well, and, you know, and, it, it,
0: and many scholars and movements of teaching and education say it's meant to be seen and heard. You have to get up and move it and speak it and hear it and talk it and okay, live it.
2: Okay.
1: That that being said, the body of work is profound. And oh, yeah. and anyone who does a body of work has a message that they are trying to share. What would you say that the message of all of the work was trying to share with all of humanity?
0: Would I say? Um, yeah. Well, let me see. Um, one of the most immortal plays is, is the Shakespeare version of Hamlet, the Hamlet that has a Shakespeare name on it, because it's never going to grow old or wrong or mm-hmm. inappropriate. And it is telling us that the government we see now is an illusion and that the real government is something else and that the ghost is absolutely right. What you believe to be true is not true. The real truth is underneath. And you have to trust your feelings and you have to trust your intuition and you have to trust your instinct and your heart. And 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 so... I would say that that play in 1601 has a real great message about, you know, that government is a cover-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was speaking with an anthroposophical scholar the other day on that, and she said, well, that depends on how Hamlet's taught. And it's like, it doesn't depend on how Hamlet. It's there. You read Hamlet. It's a cover-up. Claudius says the world is one way. The ghost comes in and says the world is another way.
2: Yeah. Who are you gonna
0: believe? Are you gonna believe the spirit world or are you gonna believe the physical world? And that's just like our profession, Barbara, as mediums. You know? Mm-hmm. You know. And and I learned <laughs> that when I was giving messages. All my mediumship teachers says, Don't tell people what they want to hear. Get out of the way of yourself. Go to God and the white light and give the truthful message. Whether they want to hear it or not, it's for their highest and greatest good. And that's to me, to me, that's the ghost in Hamlet. Yeah, because and, Hamlet you know, <laughs> is saying, it's all a lie. What you see in front of you is a lie, and you're my son, and I love you. He asks for revenge, which is not the smartest thing to do, but um, the message that the world is an illusion is a big, big, I think it's really well done in Hamlet.
1: Well, you know, you did say, I forget where it came from, but you know, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women in it merely players.
0: That's as you like it, and that's really true. that was written a year yeah. before that's absolutely true and then the other the other play that always um um uh um well okay uh the the thing that it, it's a dream um you have dreamed here, and we are players that's the end of midsummer Night's dream i think the part the part that this is an illusion go deeper um so you have the end of midsummer Night's Dream, you have Hamlet, and then the last play in the tempest it's the same thing um it is uh, um, 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 spells and magic. I'm ending spells. I'm ending magic. I'm ending artifice. Um, uh, uh, I, I think the Tempest has that that message too. And I think what they're trying what, what um, that the world is an illusion and things are not what they seem and go deeper. And I mean the other play I love. One one of the plays I love is Richard the Second which is, I think, 1594 um, because the king believes the angels will come down in the chain of being. The angels will come down and and kill who's attacking him. He will be protected by God. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work that way on earth, you know. Earth
2: is
0: (laughs) Earth is a place of chaos and confusion, and Shakespeare is saying that it's like you can have all the angels you want. You come down to Earth, you gotta be crafty. You gotta get out of it. You gotta be Falstaff is what you gotta be because Earth is chaos and confusion and deception and gluttony and it's all the lower parts of the Elizabethan chain of being. It's all the seven deadly sins. It's a lot of sex. It's a lot of gluttony and it's a lot of lies. You still have to be noble and call on your spirit guides and you still have to call on the angels, but earth is tough. And I think that's what he's saying. I think, I think it, the plays are saying it's an illusion. Be careful. Navigate around it. Trust your yeah, heart. I, Trust the angels.
1: I I have found that those pieces of literature um, that have stood the test of time often have a timeless. Message within them that is hidden in the context of what has been written, and so if we look upon the work of Shakespeare, so over 400 years old now. Um, it's it, it's it's more than who wrote it. It's it's it is it has survived as a as a collective in which there is a message that is timeless what is that message and and as with lots and lots of messages they are always hidden in plain sight and they aren't necessarily woven into the intrigue as much they are into the outcome of the intrigue so that so that what we've got here is an amazing uh, body of work that has been certainly performed over 400 years brilliantly in all shapes and forms. The the intricacy and, and the, the way with which the words are woven often leave you befuddled, and yet there is an underlying message that may be subliminally planted within the consciousness to awaken an understanding of the greater good at some point in time.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I also have to say... Um, you know, being a medium and a spiritualist, um, you know, the the chain, I, the reason I love Elizabethan Jacobean literature is the chain of being in the presence of the angels, and that there is, you know, providence. That's what they believed. There is providence. In the afterlife, there is justice. There is justice. You know, you can be Richard yeah. third and kill all those people, but, you know... Sorry, you know, there's going to be an Earl of Richmond that comes and eats you up, and he's truly good. You know, I mean, there's always some kind of justice going on. There is justice. Um, and that's what the chain of being believes, it shows us. You know, um, the mm-hmm. e- EMW Tilliard, the great British critic, really wrote out the book about the chain of being, which I I use in my teaching of Shakespeare all the time. And it's true; the message is underneath, but always in behavior, there is justice. There is a form of re- reciprocity, of equanimity, of 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 divine providence, of divine love. D- there is there is there is some kind of justice that happens, and 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 that's a big message too. And it's and don't believe the earth in front of you, you know. Don't yeah. take it. Don't take it all for granted. Don't think it's the real thing. Go deeper. Ask questions. Go inside it. Go around it.
1: Definitely, definitely, and, and and yeah, and and it's an it's an amazing message that that I think is so well hidden in plain view that people don't understand they're getting that message when they're reading it or watching it and you know it 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 amazes me that as a as a body of work this above all others has has sur- not only survived but it 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 has it remains as the the pinnacle of an example of that particular the literature of that particular point in time and
0: yes yes
1: and And possibly as it's possibly it's not even appropriate to try to dissect who actually Shakespeare was, but more important that we look at what is the message that has been carried through centuries that 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 we're still we're still that is still being performed, that is still sending a message that is still implanting a philosophy in people um it It's brilliantly done and and maybe that's that's more important than trying to say who wrote it because we'll never know i mean we'll just and, never know
0: and 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 um to uh um interpret it it's meant to be seen and heard you know, it's meant to be spoken, it's meant to be heard, it's meant to be lived, it's meant to be moved, it's meant to be seen, it's meant to be touched. So to bring it as truthfully to life as possible, and the truth of the Elizabethan chain of being, I like much more than the truth today. I mean, these plays were written before Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism, and like there is no afterlife, and there are no ghosts, and there are no spirits. I, I really believe the Elizabethan world. I believe all that. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> well, let me
1: ask you something because, um, you know, I, I get tongue-tied when I try to read it. But as someone who has performed it, is it like a transcendental moment where you are taken into another zone when you when you utter these words and when you perform them?
0: Uh, by the ninth performance of Winter's Tale how many times do we do it? We did it? One, two, three, four, five, six. Might the seventh performance, seventh or eighth performance. Yes, yes. You do the work. You do the work. The the way you do the work is through every piece of, of footnoting and and taking apart the text and speaking it and vocally warming up. You you put it, it's really about metaphor, picture, image, image talk. It's what does this picture mean in the chain of being? What does this picture mean that I am speaking in terms of my intention as my character to my scene partner? What does this picture mean to my character? What am I doing with this picture? And it's all about metaphor and image and simile and parts of speech and using the Homeric similes. And once you've, you have through your own pictures and imagination as an actor made it yours you understand that chain of pictures that event chain that chain of pictures that series of images or we could say Stanislavski says the film that you're talking about because you know Shakespeare's most powerful um work in verse is that of image and picture and and metaphor so once you have that comprehended and clarified and and it's something in me. I've done the acting work that it means to me, and I can call in guides and masters because I'm you know, an actor that's a medium. Um, yes, I did. I did, and maybe the seventh performance go to another place, and it was very exciting. It,
1: it would seem to me that memorizing the words is one thing. Understanding their meaning is another. Becoming an instrument of delivery is the in essence channeling a thought feeling or point to an audience without without putting your own personality or ego into it has to put you in in a zone that is that is beyond profound
0: it's really fun it's why i do it <laughs> it's really fun this play was very difficult and we only we did Winter's Tale we rehearsed it three weeks and it was very cut um, the director knew what they wanted they were incredibly bright and intelligent but, um, but when you finally get there as you said you know it, it's like you have to take these Elizabethan pictures and even though I can see them and understand them you know, it's, it's like meditate on them, put them in your soul, and then find the sound and the voice for them. So that what is this character really saying? What are they really saying? Um, and, and what is their intention? And when you do that, um, and you relax and get out of the way, it's, it's very exciting. And the audience stays with it. The audience will stay with it. If you are clear, the audience will stay with it. Um, A lot of uh, educators in high school that I teach with and in college, they will say, if you are clear, Shakespeare comes through.
1: I would think also, though, it would also be a place where I could understand how you would get so in the moment with the words that you would start to improvise on them and 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 that that is probably that it appears that that is what happen, has happened with a lot of the original works that that the actor was able to allow a flow to happen and that expanded upon what had been originally written
0: um i think you're absolutely right with probably when it was coming down into being copied into foul papers and into because there would be a sketch for Burbage of a certain Richard Burbage you know in in the early 1600s late 1590s of a of a certain role and um he would probably in a situation add a few things um mm-hmm. based on his tragic knowledge and his tragic training and then that would be copied into the role absolutely
1: so so in a way Shakespeare actually is in 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 all likelihood um, a group effort by people who performed the original work and expanded on it to make it more pithy, more profound, more enlightened than it yes, started out.
0: Yes. yes, 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 yes. It definitely wasn't um, a set script. You know, it it came in as a, a series of, of of parts, but. It's hard. I mean, this is from um, Pennsylvania. Shakespeare does this. Many different Shakespeare companies do this. I don't know if I could do it. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, oh, we're doing it the way they did it in 1603. You know, Um, so you're, you know, you're the king of France and here's your part. You know, no other part you get, no other part but your part. So you have to listen to what everybody says. And if you listen to what everybody says, you will know when you're coming in.
1: And and that adds to the flow, that exactly. that adds to the to the rhythm of the words.
0: Exactly, you, you, your cues are not given to you. You have to get it off the the rest of the acting company in these roles.
1: How cool is that? So acting has changed dramatically.
0: Yes. Yeah. And in the restoration, you know, um, uh, every part was written out in the script. But in uh, in the Foul Papers, it was every actor had his own role and you had to rehearse for hours and days and weeks. Um, And you would know exactly from listening to everyone else, oh, this is where I fit in. This is what I do. Mm -hmm. This is where I talk. You
1: know, it's amazing. It sort of changes your view of acting tremendously when you realize that. I mean, today when they make movies, if, if all they got were their own parts, nobody would know anything. I mean, it, it could be, it would be, you know, chaotic and, and you know, probably a miserable failure. Uh, but But again... I keep coming back to that element of rhythm. It feels as though there is a rhythm to the work, and and once they caught that rhythm, everything flowed and went together beautifully.
0: You're absolutely right. And and it is the iambic pentameter and, and the changes in the iams in the feet. The ba-bop, ba bum ba you know, five feet, six feet, seven feet, the troche, the spondee. you know, all of it. And, and it comes from Greek. It comes from Homeric it you know, it comes from classical Greek. Um and um a- and and um they did um pronounce things especially after sixteen oh one you listen to the original pronunciation. There is there is the rhythm, there are the IMs, there are the feet, there are the trochees, the spondes, it's Homeric, it's Greek, it's classical, but then there's also the um you have a Scottish king on the throne after 1601 and and you listen to, you know, an approximation of how would this have really sounded? How would Macbeth, the Scottish play, really have sounded? And it sounds Scottish, you know, it's a strange type of English, you know.
2: It's, mm-hmm. it's not
0: what we would hear in the 19th century. It's not even oh, God, what we no. would hear in the Restoration. It's, it's, it's very elongated and operatic and droning. And um, full, you know, vowels are very full.
1: Very cool. Well, I think it's it's you know we started out on who was Shakespeare and 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 of course we didn't figure it out because of course we'll never figure it out. (laughs) But but I learned a lot.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, I've I've learned a lot from you. I mean, it it just to me it it it. It makes it a bigger mystery, and uh, it, it also, in, in many ways, gives me a greater curiosity to go back and say, "Okay, let me read these plays over again, and let me let me see if I can find what the message is that's hidden within these words." And and quite often, um, you know, there and again, the element of you know every. Every book has a message. Every every commercial has a message. There is a message in everything, and and it seems to me that that the message in Shakespeare, you know, has not actually been delved as deeply as it could have been. And you, you know, you you take a look at the times, and you take a look at how, you know, things had to be hidden. In well, it's like Nostradamus wrote backwards. He wrote in quatrains. So that, so that, no, he didn't. Uh, Nostradamus didn't write back backwards. He he wrote in quatrains. Um, Michelangelo wrote backwards. Um, you know, in order to hide whatever symbolism was there, whatever message was there, so that so that great artists of every age have hidden messages within the messages within the messages. So. So I think it's 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 more complex than it was just a nobleman trying to hide his identity. Um and, and it may even be even more complex than trying to do satire on a political situation or atmosphere that that was dangerous. It 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 you know beyond even those things there was a message probably of a more spiritual nature that maybe they didn't even recognize themselves at the time but that has come out with with you know within time so um it it's, it's it does give me a an i I can't say it's a burning desire but it it is a desire to go back and look at some of these things with a different philosophy and a different way of understanding what not only what was going on in the times but what were they what were they trying to say without getting killed?
0: Um, it also, um, I learned it when I was really young um, through listening. So there's a Shakespeare Recording Society of um, the the great uh, Paul Schofield. Um, it's Twelfth Night. Paul Schofield is Malvolio. Um, the great um, classical Irish actress Siobhan McKenna is Viola in Twelfth Night. Um, Vanessa Redgrave is Olivia. I think Keith Michelle of the Royal Shakespeare Company is Orsino. I mean, that's an extraordinary recording. There are certain recordings I would recommend listening to just for the clarity of, and then read along and you get the intention, you get it, you can see it because watching it and hearing it, it's meant to be seen and heard. And that's mm-hmm. how you get the deeper meaning, the deeper spiritual meaning, the deeper meanings that life is an illusion, um um by great by great, great people. The, the 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 um particular production that changed my um life because i was just a wee child was the 1968 Franco Zeffirelli very famous film Romeo and Juliet but um <clears throat> i it was very cut but i thought the royal shakespeare actors and the older actors in there were really outstanding um Milo Roche Pat Haywood um um Peter McHenry, um, they were really amazing. Um, and uh, So there were great films, uh, like the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet, very clear, some great performances. It's uncut Hamlet. The Hamlet that influenced so many of us in my generation is Laurence Olivier's Hamlet, which is really well acted and really well done, especially by Gene Simmons. Um, so that, that's the other thing, to get the meaning. Um, what, what, it is seen and heard seen and heard listen to it you know and anything Schofield does um on a recording is going to be phenomenal because it's the clarity is there and you get the vibration in the language of the picture going back to 1595 1605 you you understand Uh, artists like Schofield Olivier too Richardson too you know the the great ones so I just wanted to pass that along
1: well I thank you and and I have to say, I, I just, I could not have done the show without you. Um,
0: I'm so glad, I, I... <laughs> I'm
1: so
2: glad to
0: be here.
1: <laughs> well, you, you know, it's it's an area that I'm not an expert in, and yet, um, you know, there's a curiosity, and, and, you know, when, when you know, the mystery of who actually wrote Shakespeare, and then as we spoke tonight, I realized that, that you know, it possibly was a group, and, and. You know you know when you when you have mysteries like this it's 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 really amazing to be able to talk to somebody who understands it far more deeply than you do and and to cast light on it in a different way so that so that you know again there's some sort of magic you can draw from it, and you know it 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 certainly has opened my eyes to the fact that that you know maybe I should have listened more, maybe I should have paid attention more um you know when when we when i did it in high school we we literally got up on desks and we we acted it out and as you said you know you have to speak it you have to act it you have to be it um not sure i was much of it but but then again in college the same thing it was it was like you can't understand it with a dry read you have to hear it
0: that's it and absolutely
1: it 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 just makes sense and and i know my mother used to quote it all the time but and and what was amazing about it was, and, and I, you know, she spoke it and you heard the rhythm and it didn't matter if you even understood the words, you had the rhythm. And, and that is what took you to another place. So um, I, I certainly hope that maybe some people will um, take a look at Shakespeare again with different eyes, will possibly go back and listen to some um, some Shakespeare and, and and pay a little closer attention and not be bored by it, but be caught up in it because there are messages there that that probably haven't been interpreted yet and that that will probably take centuries, another four or 500 years to actually be able to figure out exactly what is being said to the consciousness here.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, I I think that we are going to call it an evening. I want to, Thank you first of all for being here because I so appreciate you giving us the time I know how very busy you are but you're the only Shakespearean actor I know. So
0: <laughs> well but so. god bless you. It's always um a thrill to be on nightlight. I I love I love everything about nightlight. So um I I, I know we'll do more things in the future and um Thank you. I um, and I'm just amazed no one called in. No Stratfordians or Oxfordians called in. Nobody called in, right?
1: Nobody, nobody, no, nobody threatened us or anything. So I guess we weren't um, outrageous enough.
0: Well, we'll or try maybe to, we we'll... were just, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing I, 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 is as you say, what is the real meaning? And I, as I said, the real meaning to me, it comes in throughout all the plays. Life is an illusion. Go into spirit. Go deeper see beneath the surface, see beneath the surface, see beneath the surface. With all the Elizabethan humors and all the feelings, the real heart of the situation is beneath the surface, and there are angels watching over you, and there is divine light. And um, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad we talked about that, because it's very much like what we do as spiritualists, right?
1: Right absolutely and you know of course you know that's my that's my leaning that's my persuasion so that's that's how i'm going to perceive everything but but it 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 has been a neat in in an informative evening and i thank you so much for being here james
0: god bless you i will be in touch and we'll do more together and i thank you so much for everything
1: thanks again bye-bye now bye-bye i want to thank everybody for being here and um I'm going to hit Cindy Jordan again and let her play us out.
0: Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Yesterday, Cliff Sora shared a top 10 list of hot fusion restaurants, a vegan gluten-free mashup recipe, and a podcast featuring organic food trends. Oh, T-M-I-I, too much internet information. That's oversharing. Cliff, Geico has something worth sharing with your friends. Like how on Geico.com you could save hundreds on your car insurance, update your policy, and report a claim. Gluten-free info that's easy to swallow. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.